millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, I sit down with Tanya Laird, founder of Digital Jam, to talk virtual reality. What's best practice for TV and audio storytellers working in this new medium, and what are the mistakes to avoid? It's all to come on this special VR edition, No Helmets Required, of the Media Podcast. So I'm joined today by the head of Digital Jam and the founder of the VR Writers Room, Tanya Laird. Uh, Tanya, how did you get into VR? Purely by accident. (laughs) Um, Actually, because of my background in the games industry, and naturally when everybody suddenly decided they wanted to talk about VR and they wanted to find out more about how it works, uh, there was this natural synergy of a relationship between the games industry and VR. So there was this assumption that if you were in the games industry, you kind of understood what VR was and how it worked. And in the end, it just got to the stage where I was like, fine, you know what, I'll talk to you about it. Give us a sense then of the sheer scale of the industry as it is now, because last year I read it was called the billion dollar niche. Okay, so here's the thing, is common misconception again is that it's just a VR uh, games or or, uh, entertainment industry thing. The thing is is that the other industries such as uh, medical, military, fashion, architecture, education, all of these guys, they've been using VR for ages and they've been making money out of it for ages. Theme parks have been making money out of VR for for decades. So the actual reality... Give us a notable example of that so the theme park industry so people like Disney as a for example have been using the idea of immersivity in their theme park rides for decades okay so, so you're not literally so again I've probably no, no, got no. to get over a stumbling so, yeah. block here a lot of people are thinking but I've never put a helmet on when I've and gone on a Disney ride this is the common misunderstanding of what virtual reality actually is is that it means HMD or head mounted display which yeah. is the, the goggly thing that you put on your head which most people again this is due to the Oculus Rift assume that VR means headset mm. it doesn't mean headset necessarily there are many different types of immersive technology and virtual reality is really the creation of an artificial environment that makes the the user or the the participant believe that they are in that alternative environment. Right, so that could be a bank of screens around a room or I guess it could be something that doesn't involve screens at all. It it definitely doesn't have to involve screens. And the thing is is that that there's the idea of augmented reality which is layering on you know artificial or fictional elements to the existing world that we see versus virtual reality which is creating the entirety of that environment so that it's a fictional environment that you're within and that's the key difference but that that difference doesn't require that you have screens or headsets or other types of technology to facilitate that okay, a really good example yeah, yes that's what i was gonna say is, give is me a notable example Mars. 
There was. Is the bus to Mars was a great example of non-HMD virtual reality that was done by the good guys here at Framestore. Essentially what they did was they had an American school bus, it was in Washington DC, um, where they replaced all of the, the windows in that bus with specialist uh, displays and they created a virtual version of the surface of Mars. So these kids, they get on this school bus, they're driving around and then as they you know go through the, the activation, the windows change and suddenly they're on the surface of Mars. And and they're able to drive around and and explore the surface of Mars. And there are storm fronts that they have to dodge, and that you know they can go closer to a camp over there, or they can see a mountain over there, and they can drive towards these things. And they can actually explore the surface as a collective group. It's a social collaborative VR experience that doesn't require a headset. And that's that's a great example of the fact that you don't need a HMD. You don't need something on the surface of your face in order to actually experience virtual reality. And that's where theme parks have been going for quite some time now. If you go to Universal or you go to you know one of the Disney parks, there's a lot of these rides where you know you have the 3D roller coasters or all these other things where you, you, you're just in the car. You're not sitting there with a thing on your face. So I do think it's a, a very common misconception for a lot of people with it. When you say VR, they immediately assume it means a VR headset. But in the fashion industries and in the military um, defense industries, that isn't necessarily the case. Okay. But a lot of people listening to this probably don't, sadly. They might like to uh, make, you know, high-budget theme park rides for Disney. Most people listening to this, when they've encountered it in the commissioning process, uh, it's been, can you do this in 360? Can we do this for a head-mounted display? And it will be a conversation with the BBC or Sky or something like that. In that context... I think there's also some confusion about the difference between those two things. What's VR and what's 360? Okay. For the purists who are listening, 360 is not VR. For the people who are less engendered into the industry, 360 is is basically being able to stand in a static position within a a live-action video of some sort and be able to see all around you in 360. So actually, that's what CNN, for example, have been playing with, isn't it? That's what most TV and film have been playing with. I think they do call it VR, though, They do call it VR. But it isn't. Well, it's 360. You can can look around in 360. Because you can't interact. You can't interact. You can't pick up an object that you see. You can't even lean into it, necessarily, and see or look around an object or any of those other kinds of things. You can look basically in any direction in 360 but if I wanted to then look around and, and you know look around a corner lean forward look around a corner I can't do that in 360 mm-hmm. whereas in true VR it's, it's a, an artificially generated environment where I can I can move within that environment I can pick things up I can interact with characters in that environment I can you know I'm in a fully immersive environment and when you say it's artificially generated yes that's an absolute must have is it you can't film a real event in VR well you can so <laughs> so you can film live action and then you can uh, basically merge that into a, a VR yes. environment. So there's a lot of green screen, a lot of motion capture, you know, lots of different ways that you can capture a live action performance and then insert that into a virtual environment. People like Imaginarium are, you know, working with that kind of technology at the moment and there's there's a lot of people who are experimenting with being able to green screen into VR and even Altspace VR, which is a shared collaborative environment for social VR, have an option which allows you to have a green screen and be able to green screen yourself into the VR environment. But in 
pure budget terms, yes. uh, if a production company says, great, we've got a night with Adele, yes. we're going to film an Adele concert, we want to do it in VR, yeah. basically what you say is, what no, you're really not, mean unless is 360. you're going to cut her out and stick her on a green screen and spend many millions of pounds more yeah, making it interactive. Yeah, get a little mocap suit, be perfect. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, so that's the, that's the distinction. Let's talk about 360 then, since that is the thing that most people will yes. be filming. Yes. It seems to me as a complete layman in this, mm. that the crucial difference as a TV director would be that your job as a TV director is to choose what the camera is pointing at. Yes. And when you're filming 360, you're not doing that. I mean, you're choosing where the bank of cameras are, but then mm. you're then leaving it up to the viewer to decide what to look at. So fundamentally, what we have to remember, it is a different medium. The first thing that we have to learn about that medium is that we no longer have control. And as film directors or TV directors, ultimately, not to be funny about it or anything, we do like control. We like to put a little frame, a little box and say, this is what you will see because I want you to see this thing. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm the auteur, I'm telling you this thing and I want you to see it through this box. Mm. In VR, much like in gaming, you have no control over where they're looking. They could be looking behind you for, for you know. And so it's, it's less about framing the image and more about tempting and drawing the eye to the image. And How so, do you do that? So this is where you know, good old immersive theatre and traditional theatre tactics come in very handy. So now we're talking about the use of binaural sound and, and audio to draw attention and, and light and so lighting to draw the attention. binaural sound is like a kind of 360 degree audio, isn't it? Yes. So you'd hear as the listener slash viewer, yeah. if you're looking at quote unquote the wrong thing you yeah. hear a sound effect behind you you think oh there's something happening behind me so a really simple way of doing this as a for example sound cue behind you of a door opening yeah. and a, a little slant of light coming from behind would immediately make you turn around because you realise the door's just open behind you and you want to see what's in the door yeah. so it's those kind of very theatre style tactics in terms of lighting cues and sound cues that draw the attention so it's about drawing the attention and tempting the viewer rather than forcing the viewer as you would traditionally in TV Okay. And I guess the really good stuff, though, is the stuff that says, yeah, we'd like you to look at this bit of action that's happening behind you. Yeah. But there's enough detail. I suppose this is more yeah. scripted than non-scripted. Yeah. There's enough detail going on in this corner as well. that yeah. if you choose to do that, like in gameplay, yeah. that will be rewarding as well. This is a personal bugbearer of mine, which is that a lot of people, the first time they try and do a piece of 360 video, for some reason, they assume that they have to do loads of stuff behind the viewer as well as in front of the viewer. And literally, they give give the viewer whiplash because they're like oh I've got to look everywhere I've got to keep on looking keep on turning my head and the, the, the reality no pun intended is you know if you're walking down the street as a human being as just a normal human being you may have a view of a peripheral view of maybe 180 degrees if you're really good and all you're doing is you're looking in front of you and when you turn your entire of your, your vision turns with you so it's not like you're whipping back and forth you know and moving your head to catch what's going on around you and that's part of this this learning that needs to happen for people who are directing or creating content in 360s actually you can have a blurry 20 to 40 percent degree angle behind you and nobody will ever care and if you're filming a drama or a piece to camera yeah then actually obviously what is often behind the presenter or the actors mm. are the crew mm. and some technical equipment mm. now where do you stand on the idea of it almost being like a second layer of director's commentary on a DVD that actually you can watch the performance if you like mm -hmm. but if you turn around and look behind you yeah. it's no big deal if you see the director and you see the sound guy because actually that's that's another layer of interest well I, I suppose it depends on what you're trying to accomplish with the piece and how much immersion you want to create and 
I think in some contexts, you know, for certain types of scripted content, that would absolutely work. I think a lot of people, though, are very, very obsessed with this idea of just removing any of the production element from the view of what the, the audience is seeing. So they want it to feel very immersive. And so there, there is this whole obsession with stitching a full 360 environment. What kind of actors work best? So here's the interesting thing, and, and I've, I've been having this conversation recently, actually, with a lot of uh, talent agents that represent talent, because we've been talking about what type of actors would they need to represent from a VR perspective? How do you get a, a gig for somebody in VR? And they'll tell you all the and people on my books. <laughs> presumably. No, they won't. Oh, okay. They'll be honest about it and say, actually, none of our guys have experience with VR, because the reality is it's a very different performance skill, and it still requires some re-education and some retraining for somebody to be able to perform well in VR. And here's the reason why is because it isn't like film where it's very much focused on the close up and you do your, your, your take and you're done in a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes and you move on to the next take and you can reset and you can reset. You can't do that in VR. You have to be able to run all the way through. So it's very close to theatre or the best type of actors are really immersive theatre actors who are used to doing the entire play in one go with no breaks because the audience are there the whole time. You can't suddenly step away and kind of go, yeah, we'll just retake. Sorry, I fluffed my line. We need to do that again. Mm. You just can't do that in VR. You need Need to have the entirety of that performance it needs to be fluid so th- there's a certain degree of theater acting that is important and also the the whole when people say don't spend it all at once you know that that whole being too intense or too in the moment with vr you kind of need to be in the moment and so there are a lot of actors who aren't able to sustain that they aren't able to constantly give in that way and that that level of energy um, and also not have that direction moment to moment shot to shot and then the other thing of course is is motion capture and acting for motion capture is very very different you know speak to the guys at the imaginarium speak to you know andy circus and it's a very different skill set in terms of motion capture being aware of your body being aware of your your habits and the way that you articulate using your body is incredibly important in vr so it's kind of this fusion of immersive theater acting and motion capture acting that a lot of actors straight out of you know acting school they're, they're not going to have that skill set so there needs to be more training more more kind of merging of those skill sets in order for people to truly be able to step into you know a vr you know gig or you know <laughs> a project and really be able to deliver right off the bat i love the idea that there's a sort of 21st century singing in the rain <laughs> about you know movie actors that can't cut it anymore because they can't sustain a performance in 360 <laughs> vr Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And are there big names from film and TV who are actively interested in pursuing this at the moment? Oh, yes. Who? So, um, Not if just I... because they're ticking a box or because they've met someone who worked on a game, no, no, but no, they no, actually no. want to they make They actually VR. want to. Who? So um, from a director's a point of view, I know that Michael Bay has made a deal specifically with a company up in Aberdeen who should remain nameless. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that uh, Steven Spielberg has also made a deal with, um, I think it's Dreamcast. Right, never um, so they're in the US and they're doing um, retail um, outlets, shopping malls, um, uh, VR, so much closer to things like The Void. Um, do you know what The Void is? No, I actually don't. I was being <laughs> ironic. I do know who Steven Spielberg is, but I don't know what The Void is. What's The Void? So The Void and Zero Latency are two different examples of experiential VR. So in the case of Zero Latency, it's warehouse uh, scale VR. So you go into a warehouse, there'll be maybe six or eight pick people who are in a multiplayer game or like a zombie killing game, basically. You've got your... Uh, a PC backpack on your back with the headset you've got your gun in your hands and you're in a, a shared environment basically killing zombies together and then on the flip side of that you have The Void which is uh, an experience I believe it's based out of a higher I could be completely wrong on that um, but in a shopping centre in a higher they basically create a, a virtual environment for you to go uh, explore with a backpack and, and a headset on so it's, it's portable VR essentially but they've created props and sets within this, this environment so that as you see in the virtual world a table you can touch a physical table and it just enhances your experience of of the environments so the idea being is is that i believe spielberg's um, deal with dreamcast is to use spielberg ips to be able to create the void type experiences which will be awesome obviously um and so so there are a lot of people who are dabbling in that kind of experiential vr space but certainly big names like um spielberg and and michael bay are interested if you want to look at that on the acting flip side of that um i know that wesley snipes has just done a movie called the recall with moving pictures media and that was specifically shooting in vr elements of the movie as well so they actually have a and that's a VR, VR not 360 so well, you will be able to sort of walk around oh, it's, oh, oh it's hoisted on your own petard young lady well no I'm, I'm, be, I'm, I'm honouring Moving Pictures Media's description of what <laughs> they did uh-huh. <laughs> but, but the whole reason why Wesley Snipes signed on to that movie was because he was interested in VR yeah. and he was interested in the technology and the 360 um, shooting uh, that they were doing so there are people both on the, the creative you know side of things you know the directing producing side of things and also the talent you know performance side of things who are interested in this technology and how they need to evolve their performance. But is it telling that throughout this interview you've discussed theme parks and you've talked about an installation in a shopping centre? Yes. That essentially for the mainstream general public, yes. you know, yes, there's media awareness and interest now. Yes. But for the mainstream general public, this is something that you do as a ride, as an experience, yeah. as, a, as an in- intrigue, but not something that you'll well, necessarily want to do in your front room every day. Here's the thing is I'm being very specific and I'm being very deliberate in, in and perhaps a, a little bit biased in, in the way that I'm articulating. And that is because there is perhaps a certain degree of unrealistic assumptions that every person is suddenly going to have a VR headset in their home. And the reality of that scenario is that actually it will be the early adopters, it's going to be the PC gamers and the hardcore console gamers who are going to get into this first. So as a, for example, if you've got a PSVR, then you're already a hardcore PlayStation gamer. 
you know you've got a PlayStation 4 in your home and you happen to have got the PS uh, VR headset to go with it, it means that you're already somebody who's reasonably committed to gaming as it is. Mm-hmm. If you're committing yourself to a HTC or an Oculus Rift, you're even more obsessive because you've gone and got uh, you know a, a, a HMD first of all that ain't cheap. Then you've got to have a, a dedicated PC that can run it, which isn't cheap either. It's you know you're talking about two grand all in if you want a decent setup for that kind of thing that's pretty committed people in the first place you're talking about less than two percent of the population who've actually got vr in their home right now and then if you look at the flip side of that the other end of that is going to be the people who are dabbling around with things like you know the gear vr for the mobile phone or or cardboard which isn't exactly high-end vr it's more you know it's 360 film let's be honest but it hasn't caught on is the nature of my question you know it is people that are dabbling around and and playing with it but it's not something i've played with it but but i don't do it every day the majority of the people who are dabbling with this are not going to be able to have a high-end quality experience unless they go to a theme park or unless they go somewhere mm. where there's an experiential setup of, of this VR in action because those are the people who are actually going to make money out of this to start off with. People who are rushing in to you know, spin up a, a VR game studio or, or spin up a, you know, a 360 film studio, right now most of these people have no clue how they're going to make their money back. If you walk into one of those studios and you say, can I see your forecast? They're going to look at you very blankly and go, what do you mean forecast? Because they're all relying on PR money. They're all relying on the marketing budgets of people who will want to dabble in VR and want to create VR, not because they should, but just because they can. And those people, you know, they're big brands who are just saying, hey, let's do a bit of VR, in the same way that, you know, 10 years ago, oh, we've got to have a mobile app. And so are they getting that wrong? Or is it right that they should all be dabbling? I mean, it's great that they're dabbling and it's great that the money is there, but give it, you know, 18 months or or 24 months and people are going to start asking, well, you know, where's my marketing budget, you know, going? What am I getting back for that? I've given you a million dollars to to make a bit of VR, but what do I get back out of that? And there's going to start to be those questions. And if people aren't educating themselves from the get-go as to how do I make my money in VR, then there's just going to be an awful lot of people who are creating unsustainable business models for their studio. When it comes to making documentary... Yes, is the filming process, I know it gets smaller and smaller all the time and you can use balls of GoPros and all yes, this kind yes, of thing, yes. but is the filming process just intrinsically more intrusive? I worry as someone who goes out and talks to people, I mean, right now you and I are talking on two stick mics. Yeah. It's unobtrusive, you know, yeah. it's intimate, that's why podcasts work for me. Yeah. If we were filming it for the internet, we could put a couple of cameras here. If you're filming it in the 360, presumably you've got a bank of cameras. Talk to someone who's just had a traumatic experience or something like that. Not at all. Not at all. Is it difficult? Not at all. And one of the best people to talk to you about this is actually Sarah Jones from Coventry University. Um, She does a lot of really great VR content. She's very experimental. She does a lot of documentary stuff. And um, ask her about her Irish Irish dancers, okay, Um, which was a piece where she essentially she had a group of young Irish dancers, young girls, probably ages between 8 and 12 very very young girls and they were having a conversation and she just put a 360 camera in the middle of that conversation and the girls had a very organic very natural conversation over the top of the camera and and for them it was totally unintrusive and they were more intimate in that conversation than they would have been if there'd been a person there a cameraman there or a camera person there with a camera sitting you know in amongst the group or, or you know kind of with a you know a camera over somebody's shoulder it would have been far more intrusive and they wouldn't have been as open as they were so actually in some ways 360 is, is very very good with with but you documentary. See, you see my, when Sky News go and film refugees in the yes. ocean, you know, is it That's just bad taste to turn up with a bank of ten cameras rather than one? 
or am I wrong? Is it actually just not an issue? Well, it depends. It depends what kind of camera you're using. But I mean, as you you rightly say, you know, a GoPro camera, it just it, it's a little box. Yeah. It's a little square box. It's barely the size of the palm of your hand. And you can get like lots of small little you know cameras now that are literally the size of your hand. And it's not a bank of cameras at all. It's like a, a box or a ball or a you know a thing that isn't very intrusive at all. And being able to just kind of stick that in the middle of some action because that's ultimately what most 360 film is, is at the moment is just stick a camera in the middle of some action and let the action happen around it especially in documentary just for the record I think it's extremely lazy but that's what most people are doing right now um, but that isn't very intrusive and it's, it's very simple to have that kit in your in your pocket anytime be able to whip the camera out and there are certain people like Sarah or you know like Dean who if you are you know with them and suddenly they will just whip out that little box and they'll be recording and, and it's very very easy so I don't think it has to be intrusive. I don't think it needs to necessarily be intrusive. And I think the technology is there, uh, you know, in terms of it's got small enough that, that it doesn't have to be in your face obvious that you're, you know, sitting recording. And if you're starting out yes. on your first VR project, yes. either because you're really excited genuinely by the creative opportunity or because some commissioner has saddled you with having to make <laughs> it, you think, oh shit, I've got to do VR. Yes. What resources are there for you? Oh my goodness, there are so many. Top three. Um, uh, first and foremost, you could... So are we talking production or are we talking community support? Are we talking funding? What are we talking here? I think we're talking creatively making the show. Okay. The money's in place, even if it's not much money, right? and you want to make the thing. So you need to hire the crew. You need to, to get the right people in place. Mm-hmm. There are huge communities for this kind of thing. So there is the Augmenting Reality Meetup group itself, which we happen to co-host. Um, there's 4,400 people who are within that community they're all makers, they're all creators who are creating in VR and AR uh, you've got the VRLO community at London, that's run by Rewind and, and, and Sol and the team over at Rewind, they meet maybe every kind of three or four months but again that's a huge community of people who are all making, um, if you're looking to do something that's non-profit and, and it's for uh, VR for good, you've got VR Together which is a community specifically dedicated to people who want to contribute their time and their, their expertise and their skills to create VR that is for good. Great, so you don't so, you just have to type into YouTube, how do I make a VR film? No, you can meet people. There are with, so, many people, so many people, people in real life, in virtual, all over the world, really. all over the world. There are <laughs> lots and lots of different VR groups, whether you're in Manchester, Birmingham, Scotland, Australia, LA, New York, wherever you are in the world, there's going to be a group of people that you can physically get in a room with. And of course, there's you, Tanya Laird. <laughs> if people want to find out about Digital Jam, where can they go to do that? Uh, well, if you just want to view the content, you can go to uh, Digital Jam Mix, which is mix.com. Uh, if you want to find out more about us as a company, you can go to Digital jamlimited.com and limited is spelled out in full so it's L-I-M-I-T-E-D if you want to follow us on Twitter you can follow us on Twitter at digitaljamltd uh, or you can join us via Facebook or also in VR in Altspace VR because we host in Altspace VR every month as well pretty exhaustive (laughs) Tanya thank (laughs) you there are many ways you can't you can't get involved you're you're right out there in 360 (laughs) pleasure to meet you it was lovely to join you thanks Thanks so much for having me Tanya Laird. Thanks to her, that's it from us. Catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. This episode is dedicated to Stephen Wilson Beals. Steve is head of digital content for Global, looking after brands including Capital, Heart, and LBC, and newcomers Pop Buzz and We the Unicorns. Uh, he also bought me a beer at Web Summit in Lisbon, so thanks for that, Steve. Uh, join Stephen, keep us on the air, go to themediapodcast.com slash donate. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.